Here we go. Today is Sunday, January 19th, 2020. And this is episode 244 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Dre Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, sir? So good it hurts. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I uh, had a little speaking gig at a panel this past week in downtown Atlanta. It was nice to get out and see the public again. The world knock, still exists. So you knock them dead? Eh, eh, they they were only mildly disappointed. I'll take that as a win. <laughs> Good deal. Good though, deal. though, as an aside, how can I say this without offending too many people? Leading up to it, once it was announced that I was on the panel, I had like three different salespeople reach out to me that they wanted to talk with me. But they made it sound like they wanted to hear what I had to say. Like, hey, I want to I want to know your thoughts on X. But as it turns out, no, they wanted to pitch me their stuff. Uh, so it's. So were you like afraid about being surrounded by that much polyester and the potential fire hazard? I mean, I was, but as you know, I carry a fire extinguisher at all times. Good. So good. Good. You know, that usually, and I'll often preemptively just spray down a sales guy <laughs> just to be safe. You can't be too, can't be too careful. I did, I did have one, one guy come up to me. And this is an absolutely true story. Swear to God. We were setting up for the panel, right? So imagine there's five of us sitting at a table facing our audience of about, I don't know, 40, 50 people. And we're two minutes from go. And... And the MC lady is like telling people that we're about to start talking. This guy walks up to me, up to the table, in front, like in between us and the crowd, and asks me, he goes, hey, there's some folks from this department in your organization that's been watching a lot of our videos. Do you know who they are so I can get a hold of them? I'm like, no, that's way different than my organization. Um, I'm not here on behalf of my company. And we're about to start talking, sir. This is not the right time. But it was just... It was so, like, dude, timing. I mean, you know, successful and, salespeople. I I assume have to have a, a hint of sociopath in them. I, I I was just like, I was too stunned to respond in all the snarky ways I thought of later. But yeah, you'd be waking up for uh, years thinking, God damn it, I should have said. I know, I know. That's uh, so. Anyway, it was very. It was a good event, but wow, did it remind me of how much I don't like certain salespeople. They're not all bad, but some of them are just like, come on, calm down. Uh, like this guy, I'm like, if they're watching your videos, they're not contacting your organization. It must not be a fit. Do you think you calling them, cold calling them is going to change their mind? I, I don't know. Obviously so. So on, uh, on, on, on happier note, we will be uh, apparently, I guess, disappointing. <laughs> An audience live at Sweet. B-Sides Orlando on April 11th. Yeah, you and I, uh, we're going to record a show in front of a live studio audience, I'm told. That's right. Which we've never actually done. Correct. Despite all the we've, Twitter jokes. 
<laughs> That'll be cool. So April 11th at B-Sides Orlando. I think tickets are on sale or available. I'm not yep. sure if they're selling them. They're free or what they are. Uh, yeah, that'll be great. Oh, I, and by the way, because I was recently reminded of this, I do not speak on behalf of my company. My employer is completely independent. I speak only on behalf of myself in any appearance I make forever. And ever. Amen. <laughs> Unless I specifically Same. say otherwise. <laughs> Same. So yeah, um, besides Orlando is a, I, I went last year, you went to some pretty ex- extreme lengths to avoid um, presenting last year at besides Orlando. But. That's true. <laughs> we tried to do this last year and then my intestines exploded. Yeah. Yep. That's how much I didn't want to do this. So we will, uh, we will hope that doesn't happen again. Um, and I guess it'll be my turn if it did, but. Uh, <laughs> please no, please. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So um, yeah, it, I, I did go last year. It's a actually a, a amazing conference. The venue is just uh, really beautiful. The people were friendly. The talks were great. So uh, should be a great time if you're in the, if you're in the area and interested. I think, like you said, tickets are are available and probably going fast. They might slow down after they hear we're there, but true. Some might even get returned. I don't know. But you know, hey, there's the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So let's uh, let's jump into some stories. So the the big news of the last week was obviously that um, you know that the crazy NSA uh, vulnerability in Windows 10 that my, that uh, the NSA disclosed to Microsoft. No, I've already moved on and forgotten about it. <laughs> Codenamed Curveball. Uh, you know, so. I I have to uh, I have to say it was a little disappointed, but not surprised that most of the industry was pretty well enamored with that vulnerability. Meanwhile, everybody, well, not everybody, but um, really anybody who is a Citrix Netscaler customer was busy being compromised. Yeah, unpatched, known exploit available vulnerability, and heavy exploit activity afoot. Ouchie. Yeah, yeah. So the story for, that we're we're talking about today comes from Security Week, and the title is "Attacker Installs Backdoor Blocks Others from Exploiting Citrix ADC Vulnerability." There's a there's a lot of uh, of different aspects of this story that I wanted to talk about. You know, number one is that this vulnerability was discovered and, and disclosed back in uh, mid December, and uh, uh, then. Citrix subsequently, I think back actually in late December, published a workaround, not a patch. They said that a patch was going to take some time, but they they uh, you know, they released instructions on how to implement a workaround for the for ADC and Netscaler Gateway, and um, you know I th- for for probably lots of different reasons. Um, it's it seems that many uh you know many of these devices didn't get patched and so fast forward to last week and a couple as you pointed out a couple of uh, of proof of concept exploits were released and uh, and mass ownage ensued uh, and it's really really trivial to exploit too and um you know now i guess the the one bit of good news 
And I had, um, you know, my good friend Bob, who has been strangely absent for a long time. I I was wondering what happened to Bob. He, um, you know, he stumbled into my driveway uh, looking really disheveled. And it uh, turns out he had been up for a very long time trying to uh, to combat these things and told me that um, the good news is that though he had worked on uh, dozens and dozens of compromised uh, net scalers and ADCs, or gateways and, and ADCs, uh, almost all of them were actually mining some kind of crypto coin. So <laughs> it, it wasn't necessarily a situation. The nation state espionage level fun that we always want to see. It's uh, yeah. Hey, yeah. I made thirteen cents off your net scaler today. Correct, correct. So, um, so that there seemed to be a lot of uh, a lot so, of that running around. So, new theory, new plan: detect exploits by monitoring power utilization draw, and when it jumps up to max and sustains there clearly you've got a crypto miner and boom where's my vc money absolutely you could put like uh ir like FLIR cameras pointing down the data center rows you could actually you know spot which specific server has been compromised getting fancy i know we could even we could even put in some machine learning and, and have it automatically Detecting, you know what? You could actually eat one better. You could put like, you know how um, on the space shuttle at least they have those exploding bolts? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. We could eject the server out of the rack. Boom. Boom. Right, and have it, oh, I like it. What do you think? I like it. I, you know, and, and just like we saw with SpaceX today, we could have like mini rockets on the hard drive <laughs> that launch them out. To a soft landing to save the hard drive. That's brilliant. Absolutely. Look, VCs line up on the left. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, Angel investors on the right. Wow. This is a this is the new the new thing here. So anyway, there's there's actually a kernel of truth in this entire rant. Um, But back to your story. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so this the story here is, um, you know, amidst all the the carnage that is ensuing, uh, there's somebody running around, um, and, and the the name of this attack is called Not Robin, as in Not Robin Hood, I guess. Uh, they they are patching, they're they're um, compromising these ADCs, and they're um, you know they're dropping code on there, which will effectively close the vulnerability from exploitation by anybody else while maintaining a backdoor for them. Well, this is like old school King of the Hill stuff that hackers used to do. We haven't seen this in a while. Absolutely. But this used to be somewhat common. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. so yeah, and that, that's, it's, it's kind of interesting because, uh, um, you know, if you're trying to assess your, you know, your, your fleet, I guess depending on how you go about detecting it, you may get a false negative if you've actually been compromised. So that's true. Be uh, be on the lookout. Um, so you know, it's by the way, it's it's not necessarily surprising that the, the these things are being used to mine cryptocurrency because I guess once you exploit um, the vulnerability, you end up with a unprivileged shell, and it's not entirely clear to me if there's. A you know a simple way to elevate privileges 
on it. But I, I suspect that with enough time and, and whatnot, people can figure out how to do that. And then typically it sits between the internet. These things sit between the internet and uh, a company's internal network. Um, now there was one other aspect which kind of really chafed a lot of behinds this past week, which was, uh, as I mentioned early on, Citrix released uh, uh, some instructions on mitigating the vulnerability. But in, I, I guess, the middle of last week, they updated the guidance to say, at least on, on the ADC, you actually had to be on a certain version of ADC for the mitigation to work. If you were on an older version, you would have to upgrade uh, to a newer version before the mitigation worked because the mitigation didn't work on on the older version. And by the way, there's still no patch, although allegedly uh, there may be a patch coming out tomorrow for for some of these. I I don't envy the uh, Citrix engineers this week. No, that's for sure. But you know, it it, it points out a, a problem that I have seen some organizations struggle with, which is the the difference between a vulnerability management program and a patch management program. And it seems ridiculously and absurdly obvious when you think about it. But you know, a lot of a lot of organizations, especially older older ones in my experience, uh, you know, kind of think about things in terms of patches. And and so patches are um, atomic. You know, you you can see when they come out. You you can subscribe to you know mailing lists or intelligence lists, whatever, and and be notified when you know when one is available. But that if you have a program that's built up around that, you miss stuff like this. And uh, and so I you know I did go back and look and see if um, if Tenable. You- oh, go ahead. You know, that also applies, interestingly, to things like newer versions of Windows coming out and upgrading, like, the crypto methodologies of communication of passwords. Yeah. Or, you know, the various ways that you authenticate. And I've seen a lot of organizations that, you know, they do the upgrade, but they don't have, like you said, a methodology for changing configurations like they do, like a patch, Right. It's not part of their routine. You mm-hmm. know, maybe if, if they have something that they know they need to do, but, you know, you see organizations, they used to run Windows 2003 server and then 2008, and then, you know, they, they upgraded over the years and they upgraded the desktops over the years, but they never turned on or turned off that old technology that's in there as backwards compatibility and so they're just as vulnerable as they are running back in 2003 of some of these attacks that go after the interbox communications but they don't realize it right yep uh, and you know it's it's something i've seen pen testers find it all the time you know and it's and i think it, it may speak to what you're talking about as well here in that they're very good at patching and look at their patch stats but they're not good at configuration updates to best practices. Correct. Like mitigations and newer versions of things that need to be turned on to take advantage of it and that sort of thing. So anyway. Just no, it's, you're, you're, you're spot on. Uh, you know, we, we saw that with, um, with I guess it was not Petya and to some extent WannaCry with SMBV1. You know, the, those were 
you know, I think it was yeah, more it's a great wa- example. It was more wanna cry, not 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 pet you. Sorry, start you know, getting old sucks. I don't recommend it to anybody out there listening. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, the alternative is not great either. But well, that's true. Fair fair enough. Um, but yeah, so I did I did what, go back and look, and Tenable did have uh, the ability to detect this with their scanner. I think in very late December. Um, but it's unclear because it's, it's unclear how well that one worked because they released actually another uh, signature at the beginning of last week. So it, it's it's you know it isn't it isn't clear to me how well that prior signature worked. I guess the point is, you know, in addition to you know everything else that you're going on, you you really need to have some ability to detect that something like this exists if you were proactive and implemented that fix, you know, assuming you were on the right version, then you were protected. But, you know, it seems like a lot of organizations were caught flat-footed with this thing. You know, the other interesting thing it points out is, let's say you do have a compromised host and you're able to get back control. This is a great example of you don't know what the bad guys have dropped in that host in the meantime. Yeah. So how do you ever trust that host again? Correct. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, uh, moving on to our next story. This is a follow-up from, and actually I've got two different stories I have slightly different uh, bits of information between them. The first one, again, comes from Security Week, and the title is Equifax Ordered to Spend $1 Billion on Data Security Under Data Breach Settlement. Wait, so you're saying that they just announced to the world... <laughs> Yeah, that, they're going to spend one billion dollars. That sales guy, that salesperson you were just talking about, it will not oh be bothering God. you for a while. Every sales guy in Georgia, where Equifax is headquarters, anywhere near cybersecurity, just heard the dinner bell ring. Oh yeah, billion oh. dollars. Oh, and you know that we've talked about this in the past. Just spending money on a on a problem does not make the problem go away. I mean, you can spend a billion dollars super ir- super irresponsibly. Well, what, the way I read it is they proposed how they were going to spend it, and the court agreed. Yes. So it seemed like they had some plan. Uh, but you're right. Uh, you know, especially when they are up against a deadline, you know, what are, and they're forced to do it in a certain amount of time, they could certainly spend poorly or implement poorly. Right. when they're up against a deadline, but I don't know. But that's just crazy. I, I've never heard of a company as part of a court agreement. I'm sure it's happened before, but I haven't heard of it, agreeing to spend a certain amount of money on cybersecurity. Yeah, so the you know this article and, and the uh, the other one, which comes from InfoSecurity Magazine, points out that, um, that the, total ex- the total costs to Equifax could reach $10 billion, which... I know that it's it's obviously a lot of money, and some people will say, "Well, you know, good, you know, good on them. It's not nearly enough." But consider this: Equifax in 2018 had three and a half billion dollars in revenue. Hmm. So, you know, ten billion dollars for a company. That's a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's. I mean, that's revenue. That's not profit. That's revenue. So yeah, I was just actually looking that stat up. You know they they. Um, it is interesting, by the way, if you look at their balance sheet, they claim something like uh, $4 billion in uh, in goodwill. 
which is, <laughs> I think, pretty funny. But <laughs> Goodwill is an interesting concept. Uh, we'll talk about that another time. But so then the question I immediately have, and I don't know the answer to this, is what if any of that will be covered by their insurance policies? Yeah, it's a good, very good question. Uh, don't don't really know. It's a tough one because they've been publicly lambasted over this one. And, you know, everybody in at least the court of public opinion has said that they, not everybody, most people have said that they were negligent and which, as far as I know, nullifies a lot of those cybersecurity insurance policies. So I'm not a lawyer. I don't, you know, I'm certainly not an insurance adjuster. I'm just a guy pontificating. And it'll be interesting to see if that plays out and if they get any coverage from that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, unfortunately, the actual victims probably aren't going to see all that much money. We get um, like seven years of free credit monitoring, and then if we we actually suffered um, you know damages that that required us to go and and do work to correct, uh, you know, individual people can receive up to twenty thousand dollars. But you have to go through a, a lot of work to evidence what what happened. And, and oh, by the way, you know if if all that stuff doesn't happen until next year, you know, then you're, I think you're, you're out of luck. And, and then some of you may be saying, but Jerry, what about the lawyers? Jerry, what about the poor lawyers? It's okay. They are getting $80 million. I mean, it's all can right. they live on that? Can they I, live on that? I, it'll, it'll be tight. They'll probably have to tighten their belts, but yep, they're, they are getting $80 million. Wow. Yeah. So individual up to $125, but highly unlikely, more like 13 cents. Yeah. The lawyers got 80 million. Yeah. We should be lawyers. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, I can tell you stories, but I, I would get in trouble. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I, I thought it was an interesting follow up. It, it really points out the you know, the potential downside uh, of a security program gone wrong. I I do think that Equifax was, a you know, kind of in a, in a I mean, I'm, I'm not, certainly not going to defend them, but, you know, the, the nature of their business, they were kind of sitting on, <laughs> they had a lot of kinetic data breach energy, let's, or potential data breach energy, let's just say it that way, right? <laughs> And and it, you know eventually it was going to come out, yeah. just just because of the nature of their business. And look, you know you can find the you know the type of business they're in to be, you know, super um, you know unattractive and 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 you know ugly. And I know some people do, but at the same time, you know the the type of service that this company provides makes the you know the economy work. So, um, it's they're not going to go away at least anytime soon. And you know, it, no, I mean, especially if you look at things like California's new law about privacy and whatnot, you could certainly let's take that to the extreme and let's say you could tell Equifax, I don't want any of my data held by you. They could say, fine, but now you'll have no credit score. Right. And some people can deal with that. Some people cannot. Right. There are consequences. Yeah, and I mean it's hard to it's hard to participate in the modern world without credit and without a credit score. It's just the way 
just the way it is. We can agree that it's not probably not the best way to run the railroad, but you know, here you are. All right. Um, anyway, I thought just thought that was an interesting update. Probably, you know, maybe one of the last updates on Equifax. And then the final story from uh, for this show comes from the National Law Review, another uh, unlikely source. Yeah, I would say uh, laugh a minute with the National Law Review. It's like reading Mad Magazine. Yeah, well, the cartoon section is is pretty pretty good. Uh, so the title here is it's it's, <laughs> it's brief though. It, it is very brief. Yes, get it? Brief, I, I do. Get it? I did get it. Yeah, it's a good lawyer joke. I I I, I thought about it all day. Good good job. So the title here is ICO issues fine against national retailer for security failings. So uh, the the UK ICO or Information Commissioner's Office, which is the um, the Data Protection Authority in the UK, fined uh, DSG Retail, who owns Curry's PC World and Dixon's Travel, uh, five hundred thousand pounds, which that's a, that's really heavy uh, for for what they call serious security failings involving their their point of sale terminals, and. I I saw a lot of um, hoopla when this was announced on Twitter because you know the GDPR allows um, um, you know, fines up to four percent of your annual uh, annual sales, minimum of twenty million uh, twenty million euros, which you know five hundred thousand pounds is a lot less than that, uh, especially given the you know, the apparent seriousness of this vulnerable or this uh this issue but by the way yeah for those curious five hundred thousand pounds is six hundred fifty thousand u.s dollars yeah it's a lot less than 10 billion at current exchange rates just for the record yeah we'll see what happens in a couple weeks right after now the question is the ico demand payment in bitcoin or (laughs) itunes gift cards (laughs) <laughs> and you got to stay on the phone to go buy them yes that's right that money pack yes so um so yeah the you you totally made my lose made me lose my train of thought uh oh yeah so um lo, you know lots of uh consternation about you know why why was the fine so low and the main reason for that is that the data breach occurred before gdpr went into effect Ah. And so the you know this fine was actually levied under the prior European data uh, protection law, which was back, I think dates back to 1996, and had a you know had a much lower cap. And the the uh, the ICO actually laments that fact and said that basically uh, DSG deserved a much more su- severe fine, but they were limited based on the law. Now. You know, in in the scheme of things, this is not super interesting, except for the fact that you know, in the uh, under the GDPR, which a lots of people were were consternating about and still consternate about because of its you know, it's it's not the world's most well written regulation. Lots and lots of vagueness. This this um, uh, this action by the ICO now granted. We don't know what's going to happen because the UK is no longer be, going to be part of uh, the EU in about another two weeks. 
Uh, but having said that, it's it's really interesting because this sheds some light on how the uh, you know how how a data protection authority is actually thinking about things in terms of a of a breach, and so they actually go through a list of findings, ten findings that the ICO noted about this particular breach, and I'll, I'll kind of run through those. And it, you know, I don't want to overstate this, the significance of this, but you can kind of see how uh, under the GDPR, a, you know, a, a, a data protection authority in any of the other remaining um, European countries, and by the way, I think GDPR will still apply in the UK even after Brexit, but but whatever, um, this will give you maybe some insight into how they are, um, ex- you know, what they expect in terms of controls. Uh, now, I will say when when you read through this list, which I will again in a second, uh, there's two things that that occur to me. Number one is they're pointing out things which I think were material causes or proximate causes of the of the actual breach, and then the other is they're banging them on the head for different kinds of normal security practices that weren't in place, which may not have actually contributed to the, um, you know, to, to but the But while they were there assessing it, they might as well point out things that would stop a different type of breach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, so first one was network segregation was insufficient. Uh, they claimed that the POS systems were not segre- segregated from the wider DSG corporate network. How many times, if, you know, if, talk to your neighborhood QSA and ask them how many times uh, a, a company that they uh, assess for PCI actually says, well, you know, we, we just treat our whole network as the cardholder data, data environment. It's all in scope. It's all in scope. <laughs> you know, it's the same. It's that saying, if, if it's all hyper, if everything is high priority, nothing's high priority. Very very similar. Uh, number two, there were no local firewall configured on the POS terminals, which could have prevented unauthorized access movement of data. And DSG did not have measures to detect any unauthorized changes to white to wider firewalls on its system. So interesting, they you know they're they're criticizing that the fire the local host based firewalls weren't configured. And that DSG didn't have the ability to detect if someone had made uh, changes to firewalls. So um, you know that that is, uh, I think that's an interesting nugget of data. Software patching of domain controllers and admin systems was inadequate. It was suspected the attacker exploited a vulnerability in Microsoft in a Microsoft tool that could have or that should have been addressed but it had only been partially completed, leaving domain admin usernames and passwords exposed. I assume, by the way, that this was Mimikatz. Oh, all right. Yeah, I can see that. It doesn't confirm or deny it, but I can see what you're saying. Yeah, so I, I assume what they're saying here is they did not implement mitigation against uh, against Mimikatz, and so they were able to collect uh, usernames and passwords. But I mean, again, that's just a, a supposition. Uh, which, which, by the way, tells me that whoever did this, you know, collected usernames and passwords to you know, aid their uh, their escapades on the network. Uh, the next one is vulnerability scanning was not performed on a regular basis. DSG could have detected and resolved vulnerabilities earlier. There's really no, by the way, indication that there are vulnerabilities that weren't patched, which contributed to this issue. They're just this is one of those ones that appears 
they're hitting them on the head saying, you know, and by the way, you have a crappy vulnerability scanning program. Uh, number five, there was inconsistency in enforcement of application whitelisting across POS terminals. Holy cow! Application whitelisting is is That's... an expectation of a regulator. Now, I agree that it's a very effective control, but it's also a tall mountain to climb for a lot of Yeah, yeah. So... That one was was quite interesting. I mean, they basically they were they were saying. I mean, the, the way I read this was, well, if you had the ability to not allow the bad people to run their own code on your pause terminals, then none of this bad stuff would have happened. And and by the way, whitelisting can enable that. And and so why don't you use whitelisting? You know, the problem is that we have general purpose computers. If they weren't general purpose, can run any code. If they're all purpose built, we wouldn't have this problem. Clearly, clearly, just like the Android, it's a purpose built for a phone, right? Never gets hacked. Never ever. Right. Yeah. Uh, so number six, there. But that that's on <laughs> Linux, and <laughs> number six. There was no effective system of logging and monitoring to identify and respond to incidents, creating security risks and impeding detection and investigation of any incident. So again, further back in the article, they point out that uh, DSG actually did not proactively detect this. It was it was pointed out to them by by someone else. So they're getting hit on the head for not being able to detect proactively detect uh, the incident, which we which is one of the things that that has caused some consternation because, you know, the JDPR now says that you have to report a data breach within 72 hours of detection. It doesn't say that you have to detect it within a certain period of time. And so there's you know, been some concern of a you know potential perverse incentive. You know, if you don't detect it, you don't have to report it. But now they're, you know, this is pretty clearly saying you have an obligation to be able to detect to detect those things. It is a shame when companies are more afraid of reporting than they are of the bad guy hacking. Yeah. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. Uh, num- number seven, security of pause systems was not effectively managed. Uh, versions of some software was used was years out of date. So, yeah, that was... Probably a problem. The pot, uh, number eight, not the pod system was outdated and it did not support point to point encryption. The word encryption is missing from the article, but I'll add it back for you. Uh, which the PCI DSS endorses as a means of pre- preventing access to payment card data at the point of signature or using using chip and pin. So basically, this you know enabled the bad guys to actually collect the information instead of just the you know, the encrypted uh, data. And I, I did want to go back and say that you know the uh, the DSG actually argued against uh, the fine because they said that most of the cards that were stolen only had the uh, the, the account number and the expiration date and they said well it doesn't have the name and therefore it's really not a uh, uh, you know it's really not a person's data it doesn't you can't tell a, a, a independent person couldn't tell who that particular credit card belonged to the ICO p- 
patted them on the head and said, you're wrong, son. Uh, but, but by the way, apparently uh, there was also a whole bunch of actual personal data, which included um, name, postal address, mobile home phone numbers, email addresses, dates of birth, failed credit card check details. Oh my. Wow. And, and, and they don't disclose how many, uh, how many records of that kind of data was, was uh, released. <clears throat> so, the lesson there, by the way, is don't, you know, when you're down in the hole, stop digging. But I might get to China. <laughs> stop digging. Um, see, number nine, the, the domain administrator accounts were not effectively managed or risk assessed, and DSG failed to adhere to its, adhere to its own policies on access and passwords, which probably tells to me they tells me that they had like a minimum password length policy and all their you know, some some number of their passwords were were not conforming to that, uh, and then uh, and then finally number ten, DSJ failed to implement standard builds for all system components based on interstandard hardening guidance, which again is another interesting um, thing to hit them on the head about, right? I mean, that's uh, you know, I, I would assume that they're really talking about you know following like the DASA STIGs or the CIS benchmarks or some you know some something like that that defines uh you know how how best to configure and secure systems so uh in any event i i thought these were really interesting things to consider through the lens of um you know regulate a regulator uh taking action against the company and and using these as um you know kind of the bar so I am concerned, by the way, that, you know, in the GDPR, it's kind of written such that, you know, if you have a breach, there's always something that went wrong. And so kind of no matter what you do, you're going to be, um, you're going to get zapped about something. But nonetheless, this is a really some, some interesting insight into how uh, the regulators think. And if you are subject to the GDPR or any of the new uh, data protection regulations coming online like CCPA in California or LGPD in, in Brazil and uh, I think India's got one coming up and Canada and Australia are, are considering them. Uh, you know, these are these are the kinds of things that regulators are thinking about and, uh, you know, by the way, it may help, um, you know, may help justify Invest you know, more investment into your security program if if um, if you you're weak in one of these areas. True enough. So sorry, I nodded off during your list there. That's all right. Oh, you're still here, are you? Oh, okay. I should, look, you tried to kill me once. It didn't. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I think you're stuck. Yep. All right, so that is the uh, the last story for this evening. Uh, anything else that you would like to mention? Uh, just circling back around to the top of the show, the, the NSA releasing a vulnerability I thought was kind of interesting. And there was a lot of Twitter back and forth about what part of the NSA did it and why didn't they keep it for their own exploit use and maybe it was already burned and all that sort of stuff. So it's kind of interesting you know, kind of James Bondian discussion going on about why the NSA did that. But hey, at the end of the day, it makes us all safer. So yeah. kudos for once to yeah. the NSA for releasing. <laughs> it, they, they seemed 
to be a you know, seem to be a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because some yeah. people like some people were pissed at them for you know not stockpiling it, and some people were pissed at them because they interpreted it as you know virtue signaling. Oh, look at you know look how, how good we are. <laughs> we, we people are too damn sensitive. I mean, I mean, and, and by the way, I should edit what I said earlier about kudos from once the NSA. No, I think the NSA does really good work all the time and they have a lot of very dedicated people who keep us safe. Don't get me wrong. So it's not like the only time the NSA has done something good, but I'm just saying, Hey, you know, we in don't, the era we don't where, normally hear about that. Hear right, about it. Right. Yeah. And everybody likes to rag on the government regardless of the administration. And here was something that was a good thing. So just wanted to say that. That's all. That's all I got. And uh, April 11th, Orlando, you and I be there, be square. That's right. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you to our Patreon donors. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you. You guys are awesome. And with that, we'll talk again, hopefully, next week. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.